Welcome to episode six of the Planning Life Insights of Brian, a podcast looking into the practical things you need to know about navigating your business through the planning system of England and Wales. We hope the joys of lockdown 3.0 and homeschooling find you well. Today, we'll be looking at whether it's the end of the line for making applications for drop-in permissions, one of the key options where developers need to rework planning consents within a wider scheme to reflect market changes and achieve the best possible outcome for all parts of their site. That's following the recent Court of Appeal decision in Hillside Parks and the Snowdonia National Park Authority. I'm reminded of when, in the 1890s, the American humorist Mark Twain was on a speaking tour in London to help pay off some massive debt. Without the trusty online social media we enjoy today, rumours started uh, in the US that he was gravely ill, then that he died, and then an American paper printed his obituary. A reporter asked Twain for comments on all of this back in London. He replied, the reports of my death are greatly exaggerated. So, spoiler alert, we think nothing particular has changed on drop-ins. The online stir in the microcosm of planning about whether Hillside Parks has drastically affected the lawfulness of drop-in permissions is greatly exaggerated. Rest assured, normal business should resume. But what this does highlight is two things. Firstly, as ever, it's so important to bake scope for lawful future scheme amendments into your initial site-wide planning permission so you can roll with the dictates of commercial reality later on. Secondly, before applying for or implementing a drop-in permission, it's worth checking you're not dropping an unintentional tactical nuke into your site-wide consent. But that was always true. Stepping back, this ever-evolving case law on whether permissions benefiting the same land are compatible with each other really brings to the fore that there is something wider rotten in the state of Denmark, or at least totally messed up in the town and country planning system when it comes to varying planning permissions, none of which is particularly helpful when a post-pandemic economy will be crying out for flexibility and growth. So we'll be also touching on avoiding pitfalls in Section 73 applications. My name is Sheridan Traeger. I'm in the planning team of law firm Brian K. Blayton Paisner and joined by colleagues Claire Eccles, our team's dedicated know-how lawyer, and Joe Tyler, a first-seat trainee. We also caught up earlier for some expert insights from Matt Sharp, director at Quad, and BCLP partner Christian Drage, who see this kind of thing all the time, especially with large-scale resi and mixed-use urban schemes that come forward over several years. Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So the key question, both of you, is have you read the standing orders and understood them? <laughs> yes, Jackie. Good. Before we dive into planning processes, let's get a bit of flavour from Matt Sharp of the commercial drivers he's seen for why parts of wide, large-scale schemes get tweaked and remodelled after their initial consent. Here's Matt. Thanks for inviting me to respond to this topic. It's an area I've been working in for almost 20 years. I principally work on large-scale regeneration projects and almost all schemes uh, will need to change at some point between planning and delivery. Given the inevitability of change to a project, it seems crazy that there's still not a formalised route to deal with changes to planning permissions. 
Looking at why schemes change, the answer is simple. Any type of development has the potential to change, and this is um, legitimate in almost all um, instances. The case law you're highlighting is the potential to affect most developments of more than a single unit. Planning applications of all types have to make a wide range of assumptions that are used to help illustrate schemes in a way that can help articulate and advocate their benefits to the local planning authority and help demonstrate that the scheme is acceptable in planning terms. Generally speaking, the larger and more complex the scheme is, the more inevitable changes will be. When you take, take a step back and look at the practical examples, this point seems obvious. Assumptions on the amount, use or design of a building several years before construction has started clearly need ways to ensure that schemes can evolve and respond to current commercial drivers along with local need. This could range from agglomerating or subdividing retail units to respond to changing commercial demand, changes to accommodate housing tenures, such as build to rent, the need to overcome viability challenges, including the need to relook at affordable housing, the availability of grant funding. Changes in construction method also create change, such as the potential to allow for modular construction to be used this can lead to changes to the exterior design of a building, which could affect both layout and the height of a building. More recently, trends have meant that the slowdown in construction reduced demand for some types of town centre uses, such as ground floor retail or leisure uses, can also create the need for change. So the driver seems to be that almost all outline planning permissions will change in some way between planning permissions being granted and the scheme being built out. And this is particularly the case for large-scale mixed-use housing-led regeneration schemes. Claire, let's scroll back a bit. Could you summarise for us the options for changing part of a wider planning permission? Sure. You wouldn't design the process as it stands if you were starting from scratch. But thankfully, the planning regime has been adopted over time to accommodate for the commercial realities of matching consents to the market, with various statutory mechanisms available that enable permissions to be amended or modified to various degrees. However, there are some pitfalls with these mechanisms, which we will touch on later. First up, you can make a non-material amendment under Section 96A of the Town and Country Planning Act. But what's allowable as non-material depends on your scheme and which authority you're in. Sometimes it's no more than moving around a few doors and windows, and sometimes it's an extra couple of stories on a tall building. That's right. There's no statutory definition of non-material. It's dependent on the context of the overall scheme. An amendment that is non-material in one context may be material in another, and it's for the local planning authority to be satisfied that the amendment is non-material acting rationally. If this mechanism is available, it's good news because it's quick and it doesn't need any amendments to the 106. Alternatively, if the amendments are more of the non-material and amount to minor material or major changes, you can amend the conditions attached to your planning permission under a Section 73 application. Usually, this would be the conditions that reference plans with the new plan references showing the scheme modifications required. And that, clear was clarified by the courts in the Finney and Welsh Ministers case that everyone knew would come, i.e. that Section 73 means what it says on the tin. It only allows changes to conditions, not changing the description of the development. 
That's right, Sheridan. A lot of planning authorities had been granting Section 73 planning permissions, which did change the description of development, often to ensure consistency between the description and other changes made via planning conditions, because there was no other statutory method to do this without having to go for a wholly new permission. And developers often apply to change schemes quite substantially in Section 73 applications, loading the concept to the max, because permissions have a condition listing the plans which the permission is authorising, and so you then apply to switch the plans listed in the condition with the changes to the scheme and say, look, I'm just changing a condition, but on the piece of paper of your permission, you have two parts. At the top, the description of what the permission is authorising, and then underneath, an increasingly long list of conditions imposed on the development. A lot of councils include every cap possible in the description of development at the top of the permission. The floor space of the scheme, its height, its uses, etc, etc. So some councils would let you switch the plans of the condition under Section 73, fine, but as, as you say, also let you use Section 73 to change that description. So if your new plan showed a different floor space, the description of development would now have a different number to what was shown on, on the plans. But Finney reminded everyone that Section 73 on its face only lets you tweak conditions and not the description at the top of the permission. I mean, I must say, the more, more I speak, the more I imagine an alien observing from Mars would just think this is all madness. You know, it's just one piece of paper and, and we should definitely be looking for a better way. But I do think all the excitement around Finney is also overblown. The workaround is just to say, look, these restrictions on height, floor space, uses at the top of the permission, they don't have to be part of what describes what is authorised at the top of the permission. What's the difference if those restrictions are just conditions imposed on the development in, in the lower half of the permission, in the conditions? And let's use Section 96A, which is for non-material tweaking about like that, to move the unhelpful limitations from the description of development at the top of the paper into a condition at the bottom of the piece of paper. And then let's use section 73, which is for changing conditions, even if the change is quite big, uh, to change the limitations in the conditions to match whatever the new plans say. And we'll come to it later, but there must be fundamentally a better way than all of that. But Claire, there's a fair amount of other limitations on what a section 73 application can do, even if you sort the Finney limitation, isn't there? Indeed, that's right. There, there's a few, which in some circumstances will be obvious and in others needs legal advice. For example, any new condition imposed on Section 73 permission must be one which the LPA could lawfully have imposed on the original grant of planning permission, and an amended planning condition will not be valid if it alters the extent or the nature of the development originally permitted. For example, if an original permission permits, say, a hotel development, which is in Class C1, with the maximum number of bedrooms set out in a planning condition, a Section 73 application could not be submitted to change this condition to allow these bedrooms to be used for, say, student accommodation instead, which is sui generis use, as this would change the nature of the development originally permitted. And also remember, your new Section 73 permission is a new permission and not a tweak to the original one, like a Section 96A amendment. So you can pick and choose between implementing the original permission or the Section 73. If you're looking at more substantial scheme changes, you might have to submit a new planning application. 
However, if you are making substantial changes to only part or a phase of a large or multi-phase scheme which warrants submission of a new planning application, you can do this so the new application relates only to that part or phase. And these are called drop-in or slot-in applications and what we're talking about today. And these should always be approached with care. Okay, and these, these drop-in and slot-in applications are, again, where you're trying to interfere with the wider principles of the wider consent as little as possible. They're called drop-in applications because you're basically parachuting in a new consent on top of part of the existing wider consent. Now, these drop-in applications over part of your site and Section 73 applications over the entire wider consent are not mutually exclusive. You know, I like all of these slightly misconceived and mixed up analogies from time to time. So the way I see it is, if your site-wide planning permission were a patient and your drop-in application planning sort of keyhole surgery, you might need to prep the patient for the procedure with a Section 73 to make sure the body's ready to receive a new and unexpected organ by changing any conditions on the main permission to make sure the development carried out under the drop-in permission doesn't mess with everyone's ability to comply with the conditions on the main permission. So a concrete example, let's say the site-wide permission says you can't build out, I don't know, 60% of private resi dwellings until you've delivered some highway access works on a particular part of the site. But then you come in with a new drop-in and you drop it in and you implement that new permission for something else. That means you can't deliver the access anymore for the older permission. Well, you, you now can't deliver more than 60% of private residential dwellings under the original site-wide permission anymore. You're going to have to move that access under the site-wide permission first. Now, we touched on some of the reasons why you'd prefer one of these routes to change your scheme consent to another. But I asked Matt Sharp what's going through his mind when it comes to plumping for one route to consent over another. The need for change often arises closer to the point when a development is expected to be delivered. This means that timescales for securing change is an important factor. The cost of going through a fresh application can be high, which adds both time and money to a project at a point where viability is the commercial driver for a change. Whilst many of the changes that affect these schemes would not materially affect the nature of the scheme originally granted planning permission, the decision is ultimately with the local planning authority. Given the fate of your project is in their hands, it's therefore essential that you've got a positive and working relationship with both officers and senior members of the council. Non-material amendments are often the preferred route to secure changes, but their scope is clearly limited to those where the local planning authority agree that the change is non-material. This can be particularly problematic where the scheme has gone through a number of changes which will in incrementally reduce your scope for change. They should also be the quick route to secure a change as they can be determined within 28 days. But we're seeing many local planning authorities take much longer than this, particularly when uh, planning committees are often uh, requiring these applications to be determined by them, which can then um, add a political dimension to the project, um, including the re-examination of additional um, topics not within the scope of a NMA. Section 73 applications can give a wider range of changes, but with large sites with multiple landowners, this can often pose a range of additional challenges. You may also need to consider your SIL liability when considering options for change. The SIL regulations allow for SIL already paid to be credited against 
new Section 73 permissions or a drop-in, but both of a series of tests as to whether this will apply. The timing and structure of new uh, permissions can affect this. A new permission can also lead to the recalculation of SIL, which in some cases where the council has increased its charges since the original permission or significant indexation applies can lead to a big and unexpected jump in liability, even where the floor space doesn't change significantly. A drop-in can therefore provide a number of benefits, potentially providing a more you know, straightforward approach, but they are clearly not without their challenges as the principle of development is reopened, along with the need for new application documents, such as the environmental impact assessment. So the options for change can be a minefield, but with careful thought, particularly in relation to the way the wider planning permission is interacted with, there can always be some helpful ways through these problematic issues. Good stuff. Let's, let's drill down into what the legal issues for drop-ins look like. Now, if drop-in applications are like parachuting in a focused saviour to part of the wider consent with risks, I'm reminded of that movie from the 70s, A Bridge Too Far. In World War II, British paratroopers get dropped behind enemy lines to capture some bridges in Holland. Work with me here. But no one has really thought about what's going to surround the paratroopers when they land and how they're going to interact with their surroundings when they land. They're told, don't worry, guys, resistance will be bored kids and old men in uniforms. And it turns out to be fanatical elite infantry with tanks. And the British paratroopers haven't been sent in with serious anti-tank weapons. They don't have enough water. They don't interact well with their new environment at Arnhem. And after a lot of heroic scenes, they've got to surrender. So at least figuratively speaking, that's basically what happens when drop-ins go wrong if, you don't go, if, you're, if you're not prepared. Can we at least have a movie reference from after Born Sheridan, maybe post the 90s? Um, okay, well, may, maybe next time, Joe. Um, I'll, I'll see what's on, 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 on Netflix. Anyway, back to town and country planning. Statute doesn't explicitly cater for drop-in applications. So this is all governed by judge-made law, which we need to practically apply when scheme changes are proposed. Claire. Exactly. The courts have formulated rules to support how planning control imposed by legislation applies to implementing multiple and overlapping planning permissions on the same development site. You'll hear people, particularly lawyers, referring to this well-established line of case law as the Pilkington Principle. Basically, the cases clarify that a landowner is entitled to test the market by submitting however many planning applications for a planning permission which their fancy dictates and seeing what the local planning authority thinks. This can lead to multiple planning permissions for different forms of development being granted on a particular site. In fact, there's no limit to the numbers of permissions that can be granted. However, the difficulty comes if a developer tries to implement a number of different permissions on the same site. This might be possible, but not if these permissions are inconsistent with each other. So the courts have set out a bit of a compare and contrast test to establish when multiple permissions can be implemented on the same land. First of all, you have to check what the full scope of the original planning permission that has been implemented is and what has been done on the land or what still can be done on the land pursuant to this permission. And then you look at the development permitted in your second permission, which you were looking to implement. And you ask yourself, is it possible to carry out the development proposed in the second permission, having regard to what's been done or authorised under the implemented first permission? 
And, and that's great, Claire. And one easy way to tell if it's not still possible to carry out an earlier permission because you've implemented a later one is because you've messed up being able to comply with the conditions imposed on the earlier one. So take our earlier example where you've parachuted a new development over the access for the old permission needed to unlock housing developments under the older permission. Well, that's an easy, almost logic-based incompatibility. But moving away from conditions, you've also got to work out whether the schemes are physically incompatible given what's been consented, what you were talking about. So you basically hold up the plans for the first permission against the window and then superimpose the plans from the second permission and see what incompatibilities get flagged up, which bits stick out. You know, do things like buildings or roads just get cut in half. Joe, give, give a bit of colour to the test from the Pilkington case itself. Well, Sheridan, I'd just say first that there are software programmes these days to superimpose plans like that, but sure. So in the 1973 Pilkington case, the earlier permission contemplated that the site would consist of a small holding being built, which is a residential site with more land than a garden, but kind of less than a farm. But the later permission that got built out put a house smack bang on the centre of the site, destroying the possibility of a small holding with lots of land for the quasi farm. So the permissions were ruled to be incompatible. Thank you, Joe. As you say, it is always worth the architects providing a careful digital comparison. Um, but, you know, sometimes a window's fine. But anyway, but as we're more on the conceptual side of Pilkington, Claire, can you talk us through the Arthen case? Of course. In this 1997 case, there were a couple of 1950s and 60s planning permissions for a housing estate under which some housing had been built. The developer wanted to build out some more decades later, but by the 1990s, a dual carriageway had been built straight through the site, which hadn't been contemplated when the planning permissions were issued decades before. The court said that the physical situation had changed so much since the 50s and 60s permissions had been granted that it was impossible to implement them. The original permissions assumed an expansive layout with recreational areas and an estate road running through the site with two exits, which could no longer be delivered. It didn't matter that there weren't planning conditions requiring these things to be provided. Given what was contemplated, the court said it wasn't physically possible anymore to build anything that could sensibly be said to be an implementation of the 50s and 60s permissions. I think that's right. The judge said there, you don't have to show you could build out the whole of the site in the way envisaged by the old permission, but the part you are building out has to be something reasonably contemplated as part of that original permission. Okay, so let's look at whether the recent Hillside Parks case changes any of this. Joe, what happened there? Well, the Hillside Parks case looked at a 1960s planning permission for around 400 dwellings in Snowdonia in Wales. Some dwellings had been built out under this permission back in 1967, but there had been several later drop-in planning permissions implemented. These drop-in permissions weren't compatible with the master plan incorporated into the original 1960s permission. So in 2017, the planning authority, which was Snowdonia National Park Authority, told the developer that they couldn't build out the remaining unbuilt dwellings permitted by the 1960s permission. This was because the later permissions rendered this physically impossible. Well, the High Court and the Court of Appeal both agreed that, on the facts of the case, future development under the 1960s permission would no longer be lawful. It sounds to me, uh, Joe, like it's another example of someone trying to bank the benefit of one of these ancient planning permissions from back in the day when they were a lot easier to get, way before you were born. But anyway, this sounds like another fact-specific application 
of the Pilkington principle that Claire was talking about. So Claire, why the excitement about the wider implications for drop-ins? Well, exactly why the excitement, because this is a case of a conventional application of the Pilkington principles. However, in his analysis of the case, the judge endorsed the approach by the High Court in 2010 in the case of Singh against the Secretary of State, which held that if a development for which planning permission has been granted cannot be completed because of the impacts of other operations carried out under a later permission, that subsequent development as a whole will be unlawful. And he made some obiter comments that are troubling and bring into question the accepted practice of drop-ins. He acknowledged that a planning permission can be interpreted as granting permission for development to take place as a series of independent acts. But in his view, he said, that is unlikely to be the correct interpretation of a typical modern planning permission for the development of a larger state, such as a housing estate. Typically, there would not be only many different residential units to be constructed in accordance with that scheme. There may well be other requirements concerning highways, landscaping, possibly even employment or educational uses, which are all stipulated as being an integral part of the overall scheme which is being permitted. I doubt very much, he said, in those circumstances, whether a developer could lawfully pick and choose different parts of the development to be implemented. Claire, it, it seems to me a lot of these court decisions, like Hillside Parks, seem to be wrestling with these ancient permissions where it's not clear the development can be built out in phases and there may not be conditions properly binding infrastructure to the right bits of the development in the typical way you'd get today. And that's what's caused the stir. So the court applied the existing law to make sure that developers are not cherry picking from permissions where you only get the mitigation measures built into the scheme if the whole scheme gets built out. The existing law says, generally speaking, you've got to build out a development fully in accordance with the permission, fair enough. Case law's clear, you can't build out half a house without a roof, leave it without a roof, occupying it and then saying, look, what I built is lawful in accordance with the drawings. What's got people excited here is that the judge is transposing this case law about having to build out a whole house for it to be lawful, usually as part of enforcement shenanigans, onto bigger modern housing schemes. And then, not in the part of the case that legally counts, the ratio to get all plummy and lawyery about it, but in the obit of it, where the judge expresses their general view on, on, on life, the judge says he imagines in a modern permission, you wouldn't be able to pick and choose what you build out, but would have to build everything. Coming from, from the good place, the developers shouldn't be ditching mitigation bits for the profitable bits. But that suddenly brings into play the question of whether by carrying out development under a drop-in permission, you cannot, by definition, finish the original development, and thus maybe everything that comes afterwards, even in the bits which you could finish, suddenly becomes unlawful. And maybe even the bits finished before the drop-in become unlawful too. Because after the drop-in, you can never finish all of the bits shown in the Lego instructions of your approved drawings. But first of all, Hillside Parks has been appealed to the Supreme Court, so if that goes ahead, hopefully, all of all of that will be clarified but frankly i think all of this is academic because it all depends as the judge says on what the description of the development is in the permission and its planning conditions and the section 106 a modern multi-phase scheme should be clear you don't need to build out the whole thing as a composite whole or else so if you take something basic 
you'd expect to be able to build out, say, five of the 10 independent detached houses your permission authorizes if it's for, you know, 10, 10 houses, unless the permission or related planning agreement says, well, you can't. But to avoid all that debate, it's now an even better idea than it was before to put in, in the description of development, this permission authorizes up to 10 houses, up to 10 houses, not just 10 houses. Um, so you can build, you know, one, two, three, four, all the way up to nine or 10. And if you're talking about a permission authorizing a multi-phase scheme, you'd expect to see conditions making it clear the scheme is to be delivered in phases and again, not as a composite whole. Exactly. The judges following the orthodox view that whether a developer can pick and choose what is developed will be a matter to be judged on what the permission, its conditions and approved drawings say. He was just offering, as you said, Sheridan, his own personal views that it's unlikely you could properly interpret a typical modern planning permission for the development of a large housing estate as it's unacceptable to allow a developer to pick the profitable bits, like the houses, from the associated amenities and infrastructure, like highways and landscaping. Well, I, I think he's probably right about cherry picking, but you know, it shouldn't be allowed, but that's because the planning conditions in a modern permission, not all these ones from the 50s and 60s, should be linking amenities and infrastructure to the parts of the phase scheme that need it. Anyway, this is all very interesting, but what are developers supposed to do to make sure they don't fall foul of these pretty esoteric conceptual arguments like often about not undermining what the site-wide permission contemplated if you want to go for later drop-ins or, or like Pilkington nuking the site-wide permission in planning terms by implementing a drop-in that physically means you can't uh, implement part of the wider permission anymore. Here's Christian. Thank you, Sheridan. By the way, I love the throwback to one of my most favourite wartime movies, A Bridge Too Far. Uh, talking of the past, um, I'm reminded that in my younger days, I had the pleasure of working with a number of the great and good at the UK planning bar, as a number of interested parties were involved with the 1957 planning permission for major development on a 2,400 acre zone called Sevenside near Bristol. Now, I'm not talking about working on that actual permission. I'm not quite of that vintage, thank you. I was advising um, a part landowner of the site and their ability to continue to use the 1957 consent, which had been relied upon for major housing and major commercial and industrial uses for decades. On one particular variation for access to unlock more development, an objector took their grievance to the Court of Appeal and they argued the likes of Arfon and Pilkington amongst others, and we, success we were successful in defeating that claim. But we all know prevention is better than cure. And linking the many years of practical experience of working on major permissions from Sevenside through to the Olympics and beyond, I'm pretty sure that the best way to achieve both certainty of infrastructure delivery as well as flexibility for future change is via carefully worded conditions and built-in planning stroke legal parameters uh, within the original site-wide permission. But how do we achieve that? Well, here I suggest some practical examples. Number one, make sure the planning permission comprises appropriately self-contained phases of development across the site. And when doing so, make sure that site-wide pre-commencement or pre-occupation conditions or conditions which cut across phases are avoided. Furthermore, make sure phases are bound only by conditions which comprise mitigation relating only to that phase or phases. That way, the mitigation Sorry, you mitigate the risk of future Pilkington issues for future phase-specific drop-in applications. Above all else, clarity is key, and everyone needs to be careful. 
and keep an eye on the detail. It doesn't take long or it costs too much but to, to get it right, but boy does it take a long time and cost a lot to sort it out retrospectively. And here are a couple more tips. First, the environmental mitigation should be allocated only to the relevant phase or phases. Also, make sure there is flexibility as to where floor space maxima for different use classes may be located within each phase. Make sure any documents secured at the outline planning stage, which constrain what might be brought forward under reserve matter applications, such as design codes, have been carefully reviewed legally and technically to minimise unnecessary restrictions and that they are phase specific wherever appropriate and are open to revision and re-discharge. It's also particularly key that any section 106 agreement reflects the same approach to flexibility as described in respect of the planning conditions. For one thing, the use of strategies appended or for future approval rather than primary obligations offers, in, offers inherent flexibility and they can be updated without the need to trigger formal deed of variation. Also, isolating the enforceability of specific tranches of obligation to different phases or parts of phases provides certainty and confidence to investors, either upfront or in refinancings, and their occupiers and future purchasers. The team here at BCLP are frequently asked to review planning permissions, which on their face seem fine, but then when you dive into the detail, you discover all sorts of inherent defects. And even if the developer is content to take those risks, albeit I do ask why should they when they're paying good money for advisors to get this right, the subsequent commercial tenant, buyer or financer, with their legal eagles peering all over everything, might not. Similarly, identifying the principles of how the overarching architecture of future transaction documents would allocate responsibilities and liabilities under the revised outline permission and related planning agreement upfront will reduce work, cost and risk for all those involved during the post-planning stages. And finally, the use of strategies, appended or for future approval, rather than primary obligations offers inherent flexibility. They can be updated without the need to trigger formal deed of variation. These are just some of the tools available to us in the right way and, and I must emphasize this, at the right time when formulating the planning application. To put this another way, if I were developing a site, one of my first top 10 considerations would be, what is my exit strategy? And from there, I'd define how I want the planning permission to flex. And then my second top 10 consideration would be to remember that in all likelihood, what I think I will build, what I think a buyer might build, is probably going to be different by the time I actually come to implement my consent, and more so by the time I come to exhaust its use. As one development director once said to me, don't just advise me on what I can build, advise me what I cannot build, and then get me a consent that delivers up to that extreme. Hence, we can steal a march on the future competition by achieving greater flexibility in our planning permissions. Okay, so that's, that's lining up your sidewalk consent up front for possible later drop-ins. But what about if a developer has looked at the market and is thinking about dropping in an application for fresh permission over part of their site? Here's Christian again. So, scrolling forwards, when you're thinking of a drop-in, we need to work with developers to determine the best route to consent. There will need to be a legal consideration of some of this esoteric case law that you've been referring to and practical compatibility of the drop-in with the existing permission if indeed you do go for a drop-in. Think about using technology with interactive tables of key conditions in the existing permission and comment on those strengths it puts on the drop-in. Key to success will be getting the local authority on board with the route to consent. Sell the route to consent via a series of presentations and worked examples and 
produce a tracker to identify the changes, any additional impact and associate, associated mitigation, and fundamentally, the benefits the changes bring to the scheme and the environment more generally. Also, don't forget your new Section 106 will need to make clear what the relationship is with the previous Section 106 agreement in order to avoid duplication of liabilities. This may include potential sterilisation of parts of the existing permission, the implications, of course, of which will need to be considered carefully. And then the SIL regulations come into play. They never really sat easily with how developers revise permissions for a scheme over time. The choice of the Section 73 or Fresh Permission route needs to be checked carefully against the implications for SIL liability and how transaction documents going forwards proposed apportioning that liability. And here's Matt Sharp with some more practical top tips when pursuing a drop-in. The, the first point to take into account is um, getting the right team, um, making sure that you've got a team that can give you advice on all the um, available options um, is clearly going to be very important. Your team will then need to ensure that all the options are carefully considered and do not discount options too soon. It may be beneficial to progress both a drop-in strategy alongside keeping open the idea of amending a planning permission. The next point is then sort of making sure that you have good working relationships with the local planning authority. Officers can be the best advocate for you and making sure that they're on side and supportive of the strategy is going to be key. Having a clear and robust narrative from you will support them um, in, in advocating on your behalf. So giving them a well thought through strategy is going to be very helpful. It's also important to remember SIL in your approach. This can lead to additional costs or complications to the project. An early consideration will help ensure you've got a deliverable strategy. There are also some very good examples where local planning authorities have produced superseding development protocols, uh, which set out how planning permissions can be amended and how drop-ins can be dealt with. These types of documents can be very useful, particularly for new planning permissions, as it can help you have a discussion with the local planning authority about what the agreed approach to changing um, a planning permission would be from the outset, and that clarity will, will help delivery. Lots of food for thought there. Before we move on, last take-home thought from Christian on the Hillside Parks case and the way forwards. Thanks, Sheridan. So back to your bridge too far analogy. Hillside Parks was not the last bridge. Certainly more bridges are available. For a start, the Hillside Parks appeal turned on the facts, which was that the original scheme was totally incompatible with the subsequent permissions. Personally, I do not agree with the view sometimes reported in the press that this marks the end to the use of drop-in applications, hence the last bridge. This case does not, in my view, introduce anything wholly new or replace the Pilkington legal principles. But I would say this, Hillside Parks does provide an example of how things can go wrong. Doubtless the judge's comments may well be seized upon by future scheme objectors seeking to use them to support and advance their propositions. But rest assured, normal business can and should resume. I think one of the, uh, the key underlying messages that we seem to be coming uh, through with today is that something really needs to be done on sorting out Section 73 at a proper legislative level. There is a statutory mechanism for small tweaks to a permission of any kind under Section 96A, very nice. Statutory mechanism for changing conditions 
under Section 73. And, you know, everyone's now clear that that is limitation. But otherwise, you're pushed to make an application for fresh planning permission with all of the practical and political risks and costs that involves. Statutes almost academically doesn't recognize the commercial and practical reality that developers who are taking all the risk and costs will be wary of another fresh application for a major scheme. And so they then get pushed back onto unsuitable procedures. Shouldn't there be a proper mechanism for making a material change to any part of a permission, just like, for example, there is on development consent orders for nationally significant infrastructure? You know, then we wouldn't have to project rules from judges making the best of particular facts on these permissions from the 50s and 60s onto the lawfulness of routes to consent for new schemes post-COVID era. So here's Christian. Okay, thanks. Uh, so now we're talking about Cure version 2.0, the potential for improvement of the planning system to help both promoters of development and those with whom sits a duty to consider an associated planning application, i.e. LPAs and so on. Yes, in summary, I think there is potential for improvement. But first, um, I think it's worth remembering some fundamental principles and reality checks that I would hate to get lost in the greater noise. The planning system must not interfere with the basic right of the developer to test the market and to put forward several applications or variations to allow for flexibility. The LPA's role is to determine each planning application in its own right. Equally, it is not for an LPA to reduce the scope of what was properly permitted in the first place. It's a matter of law and practice to decide if, by implementing one consent, a fundamental legal issue arises in relation to another. And, if unsure or if wanting further comfort, a developer can always apply for a certificate of lawfulness, a process which is decided on principles of law, not planning policy or case merits, and certainly not politics. Likewise, an LPA can initiate a completion notice process, albeit it is very rare and itself not without difficulty, I do accept. So that all said, I do appreciate the unhelpfulness of, of this legal fog preventing clarity on what can and cannot be done lawfully when a developer needs to start development under permission A, but finish under permission B and so on. The courts have, in several cases, pointed to the solutions already available under statute under either section 73 or section 96A, but, there, but are they still fit for purpose? Well, one might argue not, since there have been only limited amendments to primary legislation, yet the courts have been filling in the gaps since the 1950s and the Pilkington case, and with Hillside showing us the debate is still alive and kicking today. So this is an important and broad subject, and it's really for a separate discussion in its own right. For now, and seeing the curtain starting to twitch above my head, making it clear I need to wrap up before the said curtain comes down, I'd offer these starters for 10. First, we know the government in its white paper is looking to provide a clearer, brighter and quicker route map for developers and investors in UK PLC and how the planning system needs to pull up its socks in order to facilitate growth and the levelling up. Amendments to legislation can help and should be looked at, but with the legislative books being chock-a-full, any improvements will need to be slick and efficient, otherwise suggestions will unlikely curry favour with government. I do see advantage in allowing Section 73 approvals whether they're for variations of conditions to allow for minor material amendments or otherwise, to be granted in such a way that, if applied for, uh, then it does not result in a new planning permission necessarily. This will reduce the red tape burden and the risk of tangled chains of different planning permissions over time. 
The system can also provide for a new form of planning application or permission when the developer is applying for a superseded development permission and chooses to give up rights to continue to build out under permission A in return for being granted a fresher permission B. But I would emphasise this should be a matter of choice for the applicant. I think improved guidance on how the EIA regs, EIA regs should apply to these different permissions would certainly help. EIA statements of conformity um, should be given greater prominence in planning applications. Clearly, sometimes even a Section 73 will require a new EIA, but it should not be the case that every time a developer wishes to vary a large permission in any way that is more than non-material, then it risks opening Pandora's box with EIA, EIA risks spilling out. And above all, I think we are talking about tweaks to existing legislation and improved guidance as opposed to wholesale review, which I don't think is helpful at the current time. I don't think the system is bust, but undoubtedly it would benefit from an injection of common practical sense. The long view from Christian. Here's hoping. Now, at BCLP planning, we're involved in the full life cycle of schemes from site acquisition to the planning stage. And of course, the long ongoing life of schemes as marketable commodities that get forward funded, financed, refinanced, and of course sold on, and sometimes split into multiple ownerships. If you're interested in what transactional arrangements you need between landowners for making sure a single valuable site-wide permission doesn't get ruined by the various landowners dropping in their own slot-in, drop-in applications for fresh permission uh, on only their part of a wider site, or, dropping in, or, or, or making Section 73 applications across a wider site, have a listen to episode three of the podcast. That's on how planning plays out in real estate and corporate transactions and how to line up planning nicely for a smooth and commercially attractive sale or refinancing later down the line. You know, just avoiding uh, silo thinking. Just search Planning Life Insights of Brian on iTunes or your Apple podcast app to listen to past episodes. Anyway, you've been listening to Claire Eccles, Joe Tyler and me, Sheridan Traeger, with insights from Matthew Sharp of Quad and BCLP partner Christian Drage. You'll be hearing from us again, and the Planning Life Insights of Brian will return with more on what you need to know about where the planning system takes us in these interesting times. Keep well, keep safe, and if you're homeschooling, don't worry, they'll be back in a few weeks. Keep breathing slowly. <laughs>